Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at NewBalance.com. Welcome in Lane Kick is live. It is Sunday night, May 22nd, the year of our Lord, 2022. Less than 100 days to kick off. And I don't know how to tell you this, but I think we're going to be all right. I think everything's going to be fine. And I'm going to try and present that case to you tonight. We are jam-packed. We are high atop a very saturated downtown Nashville, Tennessee. There's no need to worry about college football because we are going to save it before this very show is over. And I'm kind of joking, but kind of serious about that. Had so many conversations with so many people far more informed than yours truly this week about things I used to not care about, but now I do. I've got some things to share with you tonight. Bold Predictions has reached version 10. We're just using the X. We're going Roman numerals now. Also, some boosters down south are saying some things about some people that Maybe they were rumored to try and rid of a job this past February. I hope I haven't been unclear there. We will discuss in due time. Also, it's Michigan Mood Tracker Night, and we're going to talk about like half a dozen true freshmen to keep an eye on. There is no such thing as an offseason, and I'll tell you where they know that because they're watching tonight. And, oh boy, I'm going to get to that one in a second because it's tough to pronounce. Uh, Blakely, Georgia. Peanut Proud Festival held in Blakely, Georgia. They're tuned in. Pueblo, Colorado tuned in. Bryant, Arkansas tuned in. And uh, I've got people tuned in in India, but look, instead of trying to pronounce the city, I'm just going to say thank you for watching us in India. If you're in Indiana, I can probably pronounce the city. India, mm, it's a crapshoot, and normally we're on the losing end of that. The show did major league numbers this weekend. Obviously, we had Jimbo and Saban to thank for it, but my goodness, we are, we are in the kind of rarefied air that a show really shouldn't be in at a mere two years old, but thank you for getting us there. And as we enter tonight's show, I wanted to read a DM. I can't give you the name for what will soon be obvious reasons, but I just want to read a DM. If you want to know what kind of ethics and morals that we appreciate at Pate State, the snap of the paper indicates that I'm about to give you something very much worthwhile. I quote, I hacked into my girlfriend's, brother's, and dad's YouTube accounts, and I subbed to the channel, keep up the good work. Pate State material. We need more of that around here. We're on the drive to 100,000 subs. We need more of that around here. Thank you. Okay, let's dive into the show tonight. Well, what a week we had. Okay, so we had Nick Saban. We had Jimbo Fisher. We had a great hullabaloo, and you know how rarely I use that word, around all that, and they went at each other's strokes. And then you remember I came on the show Thursday, and I said, you know, they kind of agreed on the most important point, that whole we think we may need the federal government to come in because the NCAA can't legislate on its own. Well, after Thursday's show, obviously, when you do a show like that, you get a whole lot of phone calls from a whole bunch of people. And I have probably spent more time over the past 48 to 72 hours discussing things like NIL than I ever wanted to. I don't talk about NIL on the show a whole lot because the numbers say you don't care about it. But I do find it to be my duty to be informed about it if and when you and I do need to discuss it like last week. Well, it turns out that I think this whole Saban versus Jimbo thing is going to end up paying dividends for us as a show, uh, for you guys as viewers and listeners, for me, because I think that I probably learned enough this week and heard enough of what I needed to hear to tell you I actually feel a whole lot better about where college football is headed than I ever did a week ago, a month ago, even a year ago. But you're going to have to follow me here. Because, see, Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, like I said, that was sort of ancillary to the bigger point. This whole, how do we fix college football moving forward? How do we make sure these problems are addressed? And there are many problems out there. This specific one is about NIL and what teams should be able to do and shouldn't be able to do. But you know all that. You've been watching that. But here's where I think most people's heads are at, including our audience, because I know enough of you and talk to enough of you to know this. You're probably confused by a lot of this stuff. You know on the surface what the main points are, and you know sort of the storylines, but when you get down into the weeds on this stuff, maybe you're in college and you don't have time to pay attention. 
Maybe you work at, at Jiffy Lube in Murfreesboro and you don't have time to pay attention to this stuff. And you just, you hear things like NCAA and then you hear NIL and then you hear Supreme Court, the Alston case. You hear TV deals and new contracts and it sounds like five or six different stories, doesn't it? But you hear all of it thrown into this jumbled mess anytime stories like this pop up and you, you probably sit there, if you're like me, you, you probably think, how is this all connected? You know what? Forget it. I'm not even going to try and understand it. I'll just take whatever they send me. I'll, I'm ju- I know where to be on Saturdays in the fall, which I can't fault you for having as a strategy on this whole thing. But these aren't five different stories. This is all in the same blender, and it's being poured out ultimately into the same cup. And in that cup is the future of this sport. A lot of you are worried about it. I've been very worried about it. Now, I'm not saying I'm about to totally ease your mind or fears, but I'm telling you, based on some conversations I had this week, I feel better about parts of the future of college football. And there's a sharp dividing line, which I'm about to explain to you, between the parts I do feel good about and the parts I don't feel good about. But if you just showed up, I mean, let's say you just showed up to the party. It's pretty easy. I mean, you can take the dummy's guide to this stuff, which we specialize in delivering on this show. For a long time, folks in college football drugged their feet. They didn't want to pay players anything. And whether it was a university president or a conference commissioner or the head of the NCAA, they stonewalled this thing. And it's, here's what it's like. If you're part of our college audience, it's like being in a group and you got a project due. And if you're like me back in the day, I was one of those that looked to my left and right and understood that if I looked to my left and right long enough, someone was going to take the lead. I didn't want to take the lead on the group project. I'll lead in other facets of life, but not scholastically. I'll participate. I'll be a role player. I'm probably not going to be your leader. Well, no one stepped up. In the college group project, no one stepped up. And so what happened is we, we got that little can there and we just kicked it, kicked it, kicked it further down the road. And all of a sudden, we had lawsuits filed. Because finally, someone looked around and said, this whole thing the NCAA tries to do, where we don't get to make money off of ourselves, but they also don't pay us anything, it seems kind of crooked, dare I say, illegal. And you know what the Supreme Court did? They agreed. And that kind of brings us to where we are today. Now, if you're unfamiliar with this whole Supreme Court thing, you don't need to go and read a lot of decisions. You don't need to read a lot of legalese. I have one graphic for you and one graphic only. It's from Brett Kavanaugh. It was part of a 9-0 SCOTUS decision, which again, should just be viewed on its own as remarkable. History books will tell you this was the most divided the country's ever been in several generations, but the NCAA brought the Supreme Court together because there wasn't a single one on the bench that dissented here. Here's what Brett Kavanaugh had to say. Supreme Court opinion. The NCAA is not above the law. The NCAA couches its arguments for not paying student athletes in innocuous labels. But the labels cannot disguise the reality. Dunk, 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 my words, not his. He continues, the NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. What did he say there? Well, he said, just because your, your bylaws say it doesn't mean it's legal. He essentially agreed. Okay, so that brings us to modern day. If you miss the entire past 20 or 30 years, that brings us to modern day. The NCAA is trying to be, they've been governing college athletics in a model that is unsustainable because as it turns out, it's kind of illegal. And then you get things like NIL because you have a terrified NCAA that even though they're looking at what's happening and understand part of that's probably illegal, we're terrified to enforce our own bylaws because that evil Supreme Court told us that uh, it's kind of illegal. And so any lawsuit that's filed against you is probably going to lead to you paying a ton in legal fees and then more payouts in terms of lawsuits that are won against you. So after all that, we sit here today in the year of our Lord, 2022, in the middle of May, and we got a big mess on our hands, don't we? Now, You remember last Thursday when this whole Saban and Jimbo thing blew up and I sat on the show. I went on Jason Whitlock's show the next day. Canell and I did his show. We appreciate him having us on. And we furthered that discussion. And the discussion was, where are we going? How's this ultimately going to be solved? Because it feels unsustainable. Like Nick Saban said that. I agree with him. Jimbo and Nick Saban both called for federal reform. Uh, Greg Sankey and George Klykoff, the SEC and Pac-12 commissioners, respectively, went to Washington, D.C. a couple of weeks ago. What are they calling for? To be clear, they are calling for Congress 
to basically give college football antitrust exemption, kind of like Major League Baseball's had for a long time. And that's basically the federal government saying, they touch you on the forehead with a magic wand and they say you don't have to operate under the same letter of the law that normal businesses do. Now, you've heard me up until last week on this show say that I think that's the only real sustainable avenue, that's the only path down which we can go where we get to keep college football with some semblance of what you and I have grown up knowing it as. But the more I have conversations, the more I think a couple of things. Number one, I don't think it has to go that route. And number two, I don't think it's gonna go that route. Okay, you, if you're like me, you have a natural inclination to recoil anytime anyone suggests that the federal government's gonna come in and save anything, much less something I care about a great deal, which is college football. So I never liked making the argument, but now I have more good news. I don't have to make the argument. And that leads me to the conversations I had this week. So, uh, without naming names, some, some very influential people, powerful people, some decision-making kinds of people reached out, and also some people who work in courtrooms for a living reached out. And I had some really productive conversations this week. I don't think the leaders in college football who are calling for federal help expect to get federal help at all. That's the first point. I think it's a Hail Mary approach, but there's a clear inflection point. It's a clear fork in the road moment for college football. Path A is, yeah, federal government, they save us with the antitrust exemption. But it's just that. It's a Hail Mary. I don't think the leaders, whether it be Greg Sankey or George Klykoff or anyone in Indianapolis, I don't think for a second they expect the federal government to actually bail them out. They'd love it if it happened. They don't expect it. What is the second path? What's plan B? That's where I think the SEC is about to take a massive lead. And I think the Big Ten is going to take a massive lead. How do you control NIL? Absent the federal government giving you antitrust exemption, how do you enforce rules that they themselves at the federal level have said are illegal? Well, the answer is you don't do it nationally. You remove the power that really never should have been placed in the NCAA's hands to the extent it was, and you bring it back to the conference level where it always should have been. If you're in an American government class, you view a lot of this as the nationalist versus states' rights approach. Well, it's the same way in college football. The SEC and the Big Ten are perfectly positioned to take this thing by the throat. How do you control NIL? How do you control rogue boosters and rogue programs? You don't look to Indianapolis to enforce. You don't look to them to govern. You look to your conference office to do it. Because a conference office has far more flexibility because they get out of being accused of that M word on their forehead, monopoly. You can be a lot more heavy handed at the conference level. But number two, you need to know a very important figure. The SEC has already entered into a new media rights deal that kicks in in 2024. The Big Ten's about to announce one probably within the next month if the guidance that we're getting is any indication. Here's what it means for those schools and those conferences. Right around the corner, there is coming a time where just because you play in the SEC or the Big Ten, you get around $100 million per year just from media rights deals. You know what you do with that? You look at the six-foot kid and the five-foot kid standing in an empty pool here, and you don't tell the six-foot kid to get down on his knees to make it even anymore. You just fill the pool up with 10 feet of water, and they're both floating. Neither one of them touch the ground anymore. And sure, the six-foot kid probably still has a little height advantage just because his upper torso is higher. But if you take that television money and you enter into revenue-sharing agreements with your student-athletes, maybe even not having to label them employees in the process if you're creative enough, then all of a sudden, you don't do away with NIL. What you do is you do away with a lot of what NIL is right now, which is Wild West straight up recruiting inducement money. And in the process, you take care of your student athletes. And in doing that, you garner a lot of goodwill with them and you give them money that quite frankly, they should have access to anyway and probably should have quite a while ago. But in return, you know what you get to do? As a conference, forget the NCAA, as a conference, you get to then Enjoy all the accolades out on the stage, but then when you get behind the curtain, you jerk all of those 14 athletic directors and head coaches, or 16 if you're the SEC, in the same room, and you say, that's the way it's going to be as far as they're concerned, they being the public. But as far as you're concerned, here are the letters of the laws in these respective conferences, and if you're found to be outside of them, 
then we will come down on you. And you're not going to be saved from lawsuits. If your boosters aren't in line, forget about Indianapolis. We're coming down on you at the conference level, and you will pay a premium. The Supreme Court won't have anything to say about it, because that's not a monopoly. That's not a national approach. That is very much a conference-by-conference approach. And if you don't like it, turn in your resignation papers. If you don't like it in the SEC or the Big Ten, go, go try your luck in the Big 12. Go try your luck in the ACC or the Pac-12. Which brings me to my next point, and why I said I feel good about some of the future of college football here. I did not address those three conferences yet. Their media deals will lag well behind in terms of average revenue per year relative to the two big boys by a mile, those being the SEC and the Big Ten. That's my next question. And I don't have an answer for you right now. I don't know what those conferences are going to do. I'll tell you, I feel very confident in the not-too-distant future at the SEC and the Big Ten essentially solving the NIL problem by, in a de facto nature, getting into the NIL game. I mean, in a lot of cases, if you're, if you're offering kids the equivalent of what their parents' annual salary probably is per year in just attendance money, if you get fifty dollars or $60,000 a year, one through 25 in the signing class, doesn't matter if you're starter or not, if you're on the roster, if you're on scholarship there, and you get that kind of money, uh, boy. And, and also, since you have the flexibility because you're controlling it, what if you added incentives to access that money and backloaded it so that it de-incentivizes transferring. I think the transfer portal would be a lot less busy at that point. And, and here's a radical concept, for those who want to maintain the academic integrity portion of, of college athletics, what if you incentivized graduation? You know, what if there was, however you want to structure it, some sort of a backloaded lump sum annuity that's paid at the end when you walk across that stage in a cap and gown? All of these things are possible. So you see, what you can do at the conference level is much different than one the NCAA can't do at the national level. People have to lead. What I just said is not easy. I'm just telling you it's doable. It's not going to be easy, but it's doable. They've got to do it in the SEC. They've got to do it in the Big Ten. And then the great unknown to me, and it's kind of where we're going to end the segment, is what will the other power conferences do? Some of them are locked in long-term media deal rights that even if they wanted to do something that matches what these conferences, I suspect, are going to do, they really don't have the power to. That's the shruggy emoji, okay? I'm not all the way there. I'm just a little ways down the road and thinking, I understand where this is probably headed. And if those conferences structure this the right way, I don't think that the future of college athletics has to be nearly as, as slimy and dirty as, as the crystal ball has led you to believe it may. You know, if you've got a steady structure Whereupon being admitted to play at Arkansas, you know, no matter what your position, no matter what your star ranking, you get a certain amount of money. You are incentivized to stick it out. You are incentivized to graduate. It's what college athletics has always been about. You're just putting more money in someone's pocket now, but there's still the same incentive. You've still got as level a play field as you can have. Okay, Alabama's still going to have an advantage over Missouri because they're Alabama and Missouri but it's not this state of affairs that we have right now. Okay, that's the best I can do for you. I think that's where we're headed. A lot of informed people behind the scenes think that's where we're headed. A lot of university presidents, I'm very emphatically banging on the table right now, are, I think, more on board with this than they were. And as it was explained to me, that's kind of been the key. You know, th those are the, the great anonymous names in the room, whereas everyone knows the president of the NCAA at any given time, or maybe even the names of conference commissioners those university presidents, they got to they gotta hold up their end of the deal too. I think they're going to be on board with it because they know what the alternative is. The alternative is just the, the cliff breaks off and it falls off into the abyss and then it washes away into the ocean. Well, we can't have that. Okay, there's obviously way too much money on the line for that. So I think that reasonable minds will prevail here. There will be some creativity. There'll be a lot more flexibility because this will be handled at the conference level. And... I guess unlike shows in the past, I do think the sport's still going to be here when we get to 2030, which is good news for all of us because I don't feel like ending this show anytime soon. Academy Sports and Outdoors is going to be there in 2030. I have that on good authority too, and they're going to be there tomorrow, so you don't have to wait until then. I probably got, I don't know what it was about this weekend, but I probably got as many emails about academy.com this weekend, or DMs too, as I have 
And I, Jesse Collin, I don't remember putting out any more an emphatic call to action for the website than I normally do. Uh, but if you're new around here, Academy Sports and Outdoors is our exclusive partner. You notice I haven't done five ad reads. We don't have signage plastered all over the place. It's not that we're anti-money. It's just that Academy takes care of us, so we don't need to sell every aspect of the show. Uh, we don't need to have a Patreon account because Academy takes care of us. So all we ask our audience to do, which is showing to be the most loyal in all of sports and entertainment, is patronize Academy because you need things anyway. We're not asking you to go buy things you otherwise wouldn't need. Just do it at Academy Sports and Outdoors. And like I was talking about with the website, if you don't have one in your backyard, it's no problem because academy.com works coast to coast on the World Wide Web. And so whether it's tomorrow or 2030, whether you need new soccer socks, yeah, that's a thing, or cleats even, baseball glove, you want a grill, you want a canopy, you want a tent, they got it all. You want a bucket of softballs, they got it all at Academy Sports and Outdoors. And we always thank them and take time and try and be as creative in the ad read as possible because they deserve nothing less. We're scheduled to talk to them this week. I'm excited about that. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. We've gotten to a milestone in the bold predictions segment of Late Kick. We're at 10. Like WrestleMania 10 was in the garden in NYC. Well, this is bold prediction 10, and we're just using the Roman numerals at this point. We're just doing bold predictions version X. And we've got five more tonight. This has been a very, very fun segment. We're taking the things that you have predicted and you claim you would, you would bet your own hard-earned cash on. So here's the first one. Boy, we had to dive really deep on this one. We had a conflict in the newsroom earlier. Austin said Florida State will finish with more than eight wins. Not at least, pay attention to the wording here, more than eight wins. Could play in the ACC championship and be in talks. Okay, so a lot of the other was hypothetical. But the key number here is FSU winning at least nine games. That's the other way to word that. They were five and seven last year. You could reasonably argue with different injury luck or bounce of the ball luck. They could have been seven and five. Doesn't matter because they were five and seven. What's the roster made of? Because we're asking for a four-win jump in production this year. So what is the roster made of? We always want to go, as you know if you watch the show, to the last five recruiting classes. Well, their last five classes, they've been really consistent. They have finished between 11th and 21st the last five years. You add on to that that they have very notably had two top five portal classes over the last two cycles. So they've got a roster that probably screams to you mm, somewhere between seven and nine win caliber. It's not an elite roster. Uh, they're, they're not chock full of elite players. And if they have gotten them, typically so far under Mike Norvell, they've come out of the portal rather than traditional recruiting. Doesn't mean that can't change, but that's the way it is right now. Uh, the Travis Hunter loss on signing day was a big blow. But the quarterback position was rough last year. I'm not telling anyone in Tallahassee anything they don't already know, but think about these numbers. Stats and Info, a.k.a. producer Jesse, told me that they didn't have a single 300-yard passing game last year. But if that's not bad enough, they had seven games where they were under 200 yards passing. You are not winning nine games, or probably eight or seven, if that continues. So Jordan Travis has to have a big year here. They have to have a lot of their portal guys step up. That's just the way it is, Bruce Hornsby, right now. But here's the good news. As you look at their schedule, four of the 12 teams that they're playing won less than seven games last year, more than seven games. Only four of them had more than seven wins. So 
It's not like they have a murderer's row to play here. However, last year is not always the best indication of how good a team will be this year. They also have a third of their schedule against first-year head coaches. Eight wins is the number that everyone in Florida state land seems to be aiming for. If you go on the Knowles 24-7 board, that's what they're talking about. That's kind of the benchmark, eight wins. Under that, we don't like it. Over that, uh, we can take it. The over-under in Vegas is seven and a half, and it's juiced a little bit to the under. So, I mean, this is right around a solid, bold prediction. But if they're going over eight wins, I got to put that at a seven at least. I mean, FSU at nine wins, it's, that's a little bit too rich for my taste. I gave that a seven on the boldness scale. Next up, this one's pretty bold. Brennan said, Bama and Georgia will each have a loss during the month of September. Okay, I don't think this is going to happen. This is, a, this is a nine on the boldness scale. Here's your problem. Before you even look at Georgia's schedule, you are asking Alabama to lose as a 16-point favorite at Texas. Because Bama doesn't really play another losable game in September. So you're saying both of them are going to have losses. Well, Bama's got to lose to Texas, which is not out of the realm of possibility, but right off the bat, you're asking a 16-point underdog to beat Bama outright. By the way, with a brand new offensive line and a first-year starter at quarterback. So it's a tall task, not impossible, but a tall task. But if the Horns do pull the upset, then we got to ask a couple of things to happen, one or the other, I guess, with Georgia. Either Oregon's got to beat Georgia in week one, and the line on that game also happens to be 16, or Georgia's got to lose at South Carolina in week three. That'll also be a double-digit favorite situation for Georgia. Got to have both of those happen. Bama's got to lose to Texas, and Georgia's got to drop one of those games. I just don't think it's going to happen. These are the top two preseason favorites in the national championship odds at Caesars. Bama's plus 200, Georgia plus 325. At Pate State Sportsbook, I would probably have Ohio State at number two and Georgia number three, but I digress. They do a pretty good job at Caesars, too. That's kind of why they're in business. I don't think this is going to happen. This is a nine on the boldness scale. I would be more interested if you guys think one of them is going to have a loss in September. Like, what would Jesse always sends me an info packet with his own boldness scale? I think he made this one a 10. Jesse, what would you say? I mean, just one of them lose, Georgia or Bama have a combined one loss or more. I'd say even that's like a five or six. Seven. Jesse says seven. Thank you, Jesse. The alleged Jesse. Uh, moving on. Okay, this one gives us a little more wiggle room. Joseph said Notre Dame's going to lose at Ohio State in week one, but then they're going to run the table and they're going to get in the playoff. I appreciate this, Joseph, because you gave us more wiggle room than our viewer a couple of weeks ago who just said Notre Dame's going to run the table. Okay, I have a very hard time, just me personally, seeing Notre Dame go into the shoe and beat Ohio State in week one. There's a lot of new at Notre Dame, and there's a lot of really, really aggravated, seasoned players and coaches at Ohio State that aren't particularly happy with the way last year ended, and a lot of them are back. So they're just, they're a more talented team too. So you're giving us the ability to chalk up the first week as a loss here. I, I think it will be. I don't want to make this a prediction segment yet, but I think it will be. Okay. But after that, there is good news, I guess, depending on how you want to look at a schedule. Notre Dame's not going to be a decided underdog the rest of the way. And their four toughest games the rest of the way are games like at North Carolina. Then they play Brigham Young in Las Vegas the following week. Actually, they got a buy between that. Okay. So at UNC versus Brigham Young in Vegas, they've got Clemson at home. Uh, they've got Boston College at home. They go to USC. There are one of two ways to look at this. Remember, there's no margin for error. Uh, I would guess a two-loss Notre Dame's not making the playoffs. So they got to win every one of these, let's just assume. You could take one of two approaches. Either you could say, well, which game are they definitively going to lose, which I don't like to use as my methodology behind schedule breakdowns. Or you could just say, how are they going to overcome the totality of that schedule? They don't play FCS teams, so there's no true cupcake on there. Uh, there are some games where they'll be double-digit favorites, but there is no true cupcake. Uh, my strong lean is they are going to drop another game at some point there. And that's even if they beat Ohio State. I just think the totality of the schedule will be too much for a team with a lot of firsts. Tyler Buckner has got to come through at quarterback. Marcus Freeman's got to come through as a head coach. And here's a fun fact about Brigham Young. As you're looking at the schedule here, you know, they play Brigham Young October 8th. They got to buy before that. It's in Vegas. It's a neutral site game. 
I don't like to give credit to Parker at Stats of War on Twitter, but he did find a pretty interesting stat, so thank you, Parker. One of 19 teams in the country, that's Brigham Young, one of 19 teams that return both coordinators, head coach, and quarterback. Now, that's a fun little fact to put in your back pocket, and if Brigham Young ends up pulling the upset, I will never recall crediting Parker, and I will absolutely take all the credit for myself in five or six months if that happens. But that's a good one to keep in mind. So I'm going to call this an eight on the boldness scale. Notre Dame losing week one but running the table, that's still pretty bold. I'm going to call that an eight. Uh, here's one that will not make too many people happy, especially down in the bayou if it comes to fruition. Frank said, Brian Kelly is overhyped. Well, that's a mean thing to say, Frank. And LSU was nothing special last year. The second part checks out. I don't know about the first part. He continues, they won't be anything special this year. They won't even make a bowl game from Conway, Arkansas. Now, Frank, I feel some bias in this tweet, but I'm telling you, I, I think it's only a six on the boldness scale. I personally happen to believe there are six wins, at least, on this schedule. But here's what you need to do. If, if, you could, if you could do me a favor here if you're LSU, if you could beat Florida State in week one, it would make me a whole lot less stressed out about them getting to six wins. Because if they don't beat FSU, a game they are favored by around a field goal in to start the, a field goal, a field goal in to start the season. If they don't beat FSU, they're going to probably need some upsets. Uh, it's going to be very, very tricky. They have a very, very backloaded schedule. So here's what they need to do. They need to start 4-0. That would be Florida State, Southern, Mississippi State, and New Mexico. The good news is those games are all at home. I know they play FSU in New Orleans. I stand by my statement. These games are all at home. The reason they need to be 4-0 there to make sure that they go six wins or more and go to a bowl game is because starting October 1st, if you're listening on podcast, you can't really appreciate the ridiculousness of what we're looking at here. They run off a streak of at Auburn, Tennessee, at Florida, Ole Miss, Alabama, at Arkansas. Here's supposed to be the cupcake. UAB, they would compete in the SEC very, very readily. And then at Texas A&M to end the year. There is no gimme. There's no layup. There's nowhere to catch your breath other than the bye week. And at that point, given that lineup, even the bye week may be tough for them. They need to be 4-0. I, I trust Brian Kelly to not have the catastrophic upset there in year one. I don't think they're falling to New Mexico. I'm just going to cross my fingers and hold my breath and think by the second or third or last week of the year, they'll be able to handle UAB, but who knows? Right now, their over-under is seven total wins, and it's heavily juiced to the under. So the expectation in Vegas is somewhere between six or seven wins. We'll see. I think they're going to make a bowl game. This is a six. Calling LSU to not make a bowl game is a six on the boldness scale. That's the kind of thing where I go, ooh, I don't know about that. But I say it very quietly because there is that possibility at least. Uh, last but not least, this was a well-worded question. Alex said, NC State is the real deal. They will finish with the best record of all the teams in both Carolinas. Are we serious with this town name? Fuquay Verena, North Carolina, I guess. I hope so. Um, all the we win all the Power Fives. I assume he means Power Fives. Out of all the Power Five teams in the Carolinas, here's part A. Can all of you readily name all the Power Five teams in the Carolinas? Well, Director Colin just spoiled it for you if you're watching on YouTube. We got Clemson, we got North Carolina State, we got Wake Forest, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Duke. And you see the win totals there for Vegas. Because all we're asking here is, can NC State win more games than any of these teams? Clemson is the favorite here. They're over-unders 10.5. North Carolina State and Wake are kind of second and third, respectively, at 8.5. A little bit more juice favor uh, by the way of NC State. So clearly, we're going to mark Duke off, all due respect. I don't think they're going to contend for having the best overall Power 5 record in the Carolinas. I don't think South Carolina, all due respect, and, and we appreciate the inclusion in the hype videos, I don't think they're going to have the most wins of anyone in the Carolinas. So we got four teams here probably that we're picking from. Clemson, NC State, Wake Forest, North Carolina. I would be interested to hear what you think about this. If you're riding around listening on podcasts, I don't care, just shout it out. Make sure your window's not rolled down. Uh, but if you're watching 
the live show, like in the live chat or wherever. I actually want to read the comments on this because I have, a, I have a little feel on this. And you know, I'm not totally sold on Clemson yet this year. There's still a couple of months for you to sell me on them. But Clemson and North Carolina both face Notre Dame in the out of conference because it doesn't happen to be a conference game this year. NC State does not. You know, NC State's got a far more workable schedule. But if you're looking at Clemson's schedule right here, uh, they open at Georgia Tech, uh, which has it's all kinds of fascination around it just as a standalone game. But then they, they go to Florida State later in the year. They go to Notre Dame. Uh, they've got Miami at home. Wake, I think, also has a very, very workable schedule. Jesse described Wake's schedule earlier today, and I said, is it really that soft? Yeah, it's, it's that soft. And it's just the way it is. Second Bruce Hornsby reference. But I still think NC State can pull this off. So this is a six on the boldness scale for me, saying that NC State's going to have the best record of all these teams. I'm going to go back to that pesky little stat that Parker over at Stats of War brought up. Because out of all these teams, Clemson, NC State, Wake, North Carolina, South Carolina, Duke, out of all those teams, there's only one that brings back quarterback, offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator, and head coach, and that's NC State. And by the way, that returning quarterback could be a fringe Heisman contender this year, and that defense is incredible. Was already last year, and stands to be as good or better, barring injury, of course, this year. They were 9-3 and three already last year. So they're sitting at 8.5 as the over-under here. They go to Clemson on October 11th. That may very well decide who wins this, and not only the ACC, but who wins in this hypothetical. I, I don't think it's anything more than a 6. I don't think it's bold at all to suggest that NC State could have the best record of all those teams. That is how bold prediction segments are supposed to work. We, uh, we appreciate the participation. That tweet went out like two months ago. I'll probably have to release a new one because we're still getting feedback on that. I don't even know how you guys find it, but I'll probably put another one out this week so we can have a fresh batch to take us to uh, Bold Prediction version 20. They're watching us in Van Wert, Ohio. They're watching us in Monroe, Louisiana. Got the post here. Omaha, Nebraska tuned in and Taipei, Taiwan. A little bit easier to pronounce there. You know, we hadn't done a mood tracker in a little while, and I've been badgered and badgered. This is not a tease for Wisconsin. I've been badgered and badgered in my DMs. Where's the Michigan mood tracker? Well, the answer is right here tonight. We had to wait on the Michigan mood tracker for what I think are obvious reasons. I couldn't do it pre-spring because, well, we had just realized Jim Harbaugh was still going to be around. But now we're here. Everything's calmed down. We know Jim Harbaugh is going to roll on as Michigan head coach, and I am sensing a growing fissure probably the first time we've ever used that word on the show, between the way Michigan fans feel about the program and maybe just the general national perception of the program. Here's why. Uh, most fans, not ours, not the folks who roll with Pate State, but most casual fans, they tuned out around the time the whole Jim Harbaugh NFL stuff was really hot. And so their lasting impression was Michigan got blown out in the playoff, then Harbaugh tried to leave, and his coordinators left even though he didn't leave, and so I don't think Michigan's going to be good this year. I mean, I probably just summed up what a lot of the national casual college football population thinks about Michigan. I don't get the sense that's how the locals feel at all. They certainly didn't like the way things went down, but there's been a difference since that happened, because Michigan fans have been tuned into their program all along, whether you've been paying attention in Illinois or not. And the reason why I think that is because I think they feel like everyone checked back in. And there's another thing, and I'm kind of going to mention it at the end, but the mood here for Michigan, um, it's not going to make sense unless you follow me a little bit. The mood for Michigan fans is finally home. Finally home meaning they didn't beat Ohio State for a long time. That didn't feel good at all. They did not win the Big Ten Championship for a long time. They didn't go to the college football playoff for a long time. They weren't respected nationally for a long time. They had started to become the butt of jokes nationally. And then they knocked every single one of those dominoes down in one season. And you know what that feels like? That feels like if you've ever traveled a lot and you've had to live out of hotels and live out of a suitcase and you finally walk in the door of your home where your address is the one on the mailbox and you just go, Whew. it doesn't matter if you got clothes all over the place. It doesn't matter if the dishes aren't done. It doesn't matter if you're starving. You're home. So all those other things we can take care of. We're home. 
when Michigan beat Ohio State for the first time under Harbaugh, when they won the Big Ten Championship for the first time under Harbaugh, when they went to the playoff for the first time under Harbaugh, and when they gained respect again for the first time in a while under Harbaugh, that's like coming home. And what does that have to do with this year? Well, once you get over one of those psychological hurdles like that, which I think the fan base needed to and the program both needed to, then you're much more likely to be able to weather some NFL drama. So after all that happened, as we all well know, and it's been well documented, Jim Harbaugh tries his luck at landing the Vikings job. He doesn't get it, and a lot of the national folks react how I just told you they reacted. Um, around the program, while there was a lot of consternation as that went on, here's what the feedback's been since then. The feedback has been, we're not even worried about it anymore. Like, it's a non-issue around Michigan. I need to stress this because I, I don't think a lot of you have had time to pay attention to the day-to-day goings-on in and around Ann Arbor. They do not think this is going to be an issue. And it's not just, it's not just talking points. Okay, you can kind of tell when someone's BSing you. But the people to trust around Michigan would tell you, Jim Harbaugh's checked back in. In fact, if you read some of the feedback from some of the job interviews he did, some of those folks said Harbaugh was actually way more detailed than he's ever been. He was actually more dialed in and more thorough than he's ever been, having to hire replacements for McDonald and Gaddis and those guys. And they're also doing a pretty good job recruiting. I was reading some of Sam Webb stuff over on the Michigan Insider earlier today, talking about Jay Harbaugh, his son, who's been on the staff for a few years, and the presence that a lot of their recruiters have in St. Louis and kind of ever expanding that web, no pun intended, and expanding that reach of Michigan recruiting. My point is they are at a place now that they accomplished several things they needed to last year where I think they've got a lot of confidence as a program. They feel like the Michigan way, you know, that that brand, that way of doing things is bigger than who did we lose and who's coming in. They feel to a much lesser version. They feel kind of like Bama fans have felt for a long time with Saban. Obviously, I'm not comparing the two programs and the two coaches, but Folks around Bama will say, hey, as long as Saban's here, I'm not worried about it. Well, that's where Michigan wants to get. And they took a big step in getting there this past year when they accomplished what they accomplished. But now the psychological hurdle's cleared. And so Michigan comes in again, and here's what you need to know about 2022. Here's why you can reasonably have a lot of confidence looking at Michigan. They start so favorably. They start with Colorado State. I'm just going to tell you I expect them to win that game. I expect them to beat Hawaii in week two. I expect them to beat UConn led by Jim Mora Jr., by the way. Keep up with those off-season coaching moves. And then they've got Maryland in week four. They should start 4-0. I mean, they should, they should be perfect in the month of September. That's what they should be. And then it gets a little, little meatier. They've got back-to-back roadies at Iowa and Indiana. But the point is, they come off last year, and they got a ton of just, just mental momentum, if nothing else. And they should start very strong in 2022. And so any of the lingering questions, my point is, will be answered, whether it's McNamara and McCarthy and how's that quarterback rotation going to work out and how are we going to replace guys like Dax Hill? It will be figured out. You will know, for better or for worse, what kind of Michigan football team you have by the time they go to Iowa City, October 1st. So the impact of 2021 cannot be overstated at the very least. I don't care if they lose three games this year. At the very least, it's good to have Michigan football meaning what Michigan football should mean again if nothing else, in the national conversation. Uh, because you always hear people say, oh, college football needs this team to be good, needs that team. Well, the fact of the matter is the sport doesn't need any team to be good. It greatly helps disproportionately when certain teams are good. And this one right here, uh, that, that maze and blue, that 109 or some odd thousand in the big house, it's really good when that is appointment viewing. And it became appointment viewing again last year, and I hope it, I hope it stays that way. We got to talk about some boosters. Some boosters are talking, namely down south. So I got a question earlier today about whether I saw what the Auburn booster, the big name Auburn booster did. Here's the question from James York. He said, did you see where that Auburn booster said they didn't try to fire Brian Harson?" Well, I did see that. Uh, to give you a little backstory, and let me pull up some quotes here. I have some pesky quotes to follow along with this. There was a golf outing for Jimmy Rain's charity in Montgomery this past week. Jimmy Rain is a guy I'll tell you about in a second. I'm just going to read you a quote here. I'm going to come back to the quotes in a few minutes. So the quote is, trustees do not hire and fire football coaches. We hire and fire presidents. So I'm not aware of any role the trustees played in that 
at all. I think there were questions that had the administration had, and, and the former president there, Jay Gouge, is the kind of president that wants facts. Hard facts, that's what we were looking for. He's gonna do thorough investigations, and so that was a providence of the administration, certainly not the trustees. What are we talking about here? Well, if you've been out, and for some reason you weren't paying attention to college football a couple of months ago, but you are in May, welcome to the party. A lot of folks tried to oust Brian Harson. They don't like him. Some folks, not, not all, some folks around Auburn football uh, tried to oust Brian Harson. There were some really nasty and unfounded rumors and allegations, and uh, we, we didn't happen to dive into it on this show, but um, they were out there. Uh, some other folks who had no business trafficking in those rumors did so, and they got national legs, and it was ugly. Well, Brian Harson is still the head coach at Auburn. Because uh, Brian Harson had the stones to stand up and say, first off, I'm not coming back from my vacation early. If you want to fire me, fire me. Uh, but if you're going to fire me and get out of this buyout, you better have something tangible. And it turns out they didn't. So who is Jimmy Rain? You know who Brian Harson is. Who's Jimmy Rain? Jimmy Rain is a guy that's worth close to a billion dollars from a lumber empire. He lives in Abbeville, Alabama. He is an Auburn trustee, been around for a long time. Uh, you know, if you watch Late Kick, Booster does not automatically equal bad, okay? So bookmark that thought. I'm gonna tell you some things I think about this. I think that there was a concerted effort to get rid of Brian Harson. I think that's pretty clear. And whoever trafficked in those rumors is whoever trafficked in those rumors, there was a concerted effort. I think that I'm certainly not confident enough to name any individuals, that includes Jimmy Rain. I'm not confident enough to do that. That leads me to quote number one, which we just read, which is trustees don't fire football coaches. We hire and fire presidents. So I'm unaware of any trustees role and involvement in that. Okay, I'm gonna take him at his word. It could be that both things are true. It could be that someone tried to get rid of Brian Harson, and maybe board of trustees members weren't involved in that. I also do think that some powerful people around Auburn played a role in it. Okay, go to quote two. I don't know how to help people with their perception. This is Jimmy Rain talking to the Montgomery Advertiser Friday. All I know is facts. There's enough rumor out there that people can make up anything they want to make up, but facts speak for themselves. That's just how things are done. I have no clue what Jimmy Rain's involvement in this was. I have no idea. I do know on a broad strokes purposes basis, there were some people that have some influence around Auburn that tried to get something to happen that they wanted to happen, and they probably tried to reverse engineer a reason for it to happen. Now, as for Jimmy Rain and Brian Harson, Jimmy Rain's very, he's very powerful, very, very powerful name around Auburn athletics. I don't think he likes Brian Harson. If I had to guess based on this quote, uh, I wish him all the success in the world. I hope he wins every game he plays. It's a tough league. It's a tough job for anybody, but I certainly wish him nothing but the best. That's what you say when you have to say something. Okay, there was nothing about, I love the guy. I, it was just, hey, I, I wish him all the best. I mean, Jimmy Rain loves Auburn, and that's the head coach, Brian Harson at Auburn. I wish him nothing but the best. A translation, he's not my guy, but I guess he's our guy right now. Okay, that doesn't prove anything is my point. Like a lot of people, I was reading on various boards and on Twitter, a lot of people took some of these quotes to be an indication that, oh, Jimmy Rain, complicit as they come, I have no clue if that's true, nor do you in all likelihood. And I don't really care what kind of Twitter handle you have, and I don't really care how many posts you've made on the message board. I don't think you know anything about that to be definitively true. You gotta be careful on this stuff. You gotta be careful in automatically assuming booster equals bad. We have well documented, not just at Auburn, at, at dozens of programs around the country, the great catch-22 in college football, which is that you need that kind of involvement, you need that kind of money in order to make sure you're your operation can match the other operations out there, but then also with that kind of money comes sometimes the desire to have a certain level of access and influence that you really don't have any business having. Jimmy Rain's done a whole lot for Auburn. Sometimes you know about it because his name's on buildings, sometimes you don't. My point is, for those who may claim, and you can apply this to your own university with your own notable mega boosters, you can't just claim we want Auburn, for example, to be Auburn, but we don't want that guy. When in reality, that guy is partially responsible for a lot of what Auburn is because he can afford to put more zeros on a check than most anyone else in the state of Alabama. And I mean most anyone else in the state of Alabama. That guy's nearly a billionaire off of lumber. 
Yellow wood lumber, to be exact, because if it doesn't have the yellow tag on it, do you really want it? People down there who have seen the commercials about 10 times a day for their entire lives know the answer. Um, my question is always, how would you act? I want you to do me a favor. This is going to be tough, but I want you to do me a favor. I want you to thicken up your southern drawl, and I want you to put on a hat, cowboy boots and whatnot, and I want you to own yellow wood, pressure-treated lumber. And now you're doing the commercials. And now you're worth a billion dollars. How would you act as a billionaire? If you're like me, one of the first things you would probably do is you would go attach yourself to a major university and you would contribute handsomely. Would you expect nothing in return? Like for all of you who get on your high horses about shame on these boosters for wanting access, really? Are you going to donate seven figures a year to your local institution and expect nothing in return? Are you going to be happy with a luxury suite on Saturdays for, what, eight days out of the year and the ability to go to road games? Is that it? it, it a, a couple of speaking engagements where you get to meet the head coach beforehand and shake his hand and take a picture per year? Is that really where your need for access is going to stop? Of course not. I know you guys. I know myself. We want more. After a few years, you want more. Think about what you would be without me. Think about how much money I've given to this place. I've donated more than that coach's salary, and that coach's salary is already astronomical. I deserve more access. That is human nature. Okay, so before everyone demonizes boosters, and I'm not even talking about Jimmy Rain here, I'm talking about generic booster who writes a big check and then dares to expect something in return. Look, it, it's a, it's a, it is very much a cat and mouse game. It is very much a tightrope walk to manage this. That's why I don't envy the role of an athletic director or a compliance officer or a head coach because you need it. But at the same time, the folks you get it from may want things from you that you can't reasonably give them. College athletics is great. I, like, I, you, don't, you don't have to hate all that. It's, it's okay. I think Auburn will be okay. And I think Jimmy Rain's going to be okay too. I hope Ron Harson's going to be okay. The last question we had here is a really good one. Um, so here's, here's the question, and I'm going to direct your attention to something. Paul said, well, Paul, did, Paul criticized me. Paul said, surely you can come up with more than five true freshmen you're excited to watch this upcoming season. Well, Paul was probably watching the show a couple of weeks ago when it seems I identified right at five true freshmen. And uh, Paul's point is, well, there are a little bit more than just five out there. Well, it was an opportune time to ask this question because Chris Hummer, uh, who does about as good a work as anyone out there, Hummer is already a national name to me, but he should be to everyone. Follow him if you don't already, Chris Hummer. He put out 100 true freshmen to watch. While everyone else was watching the world burn to the ground, Jimbo versus Saban, Chris Hummer's just dutifully over there banging out 100 true freshmen to watch this year as part of 100 days until kickoff. We're only going to do like six here. But yeah, you want five and you want more than five? I got you more than five here, Paul. Damani Jackson at USC. Somehow we did not talk about him already. Damani Jackson was the number five or number, yeah, he's number five overall player, not just number five overall corner. 6'1", 190, five-star corner. USC is losing multiple DBs to the NFL. But at the same time, it may not be a terrible thing because they were 112th nationally in pass D last year, according to PFF. So He's a different kind of player. Damani Jackson's the kind of guy that when he walks on campus, if you're a USC fan, you'll look at him and say, ooh, that guy looks like the guys that used to be here a lot more frequently than they have been under Clay Helton. Damani Jackson, even with the injury stuff he had his senior year, I highly suspect he'll be a contributor his freshman year. At LSU, there's another name to watch here. This is a guy we talked about a little bit in spring with the rotation on the offensive line. Will Campbell at LSU is a name to watch. That's a four-star offensive tackle. He enrolled early, put on some good weight in spring. Shay Dixon and the guys down at Go 24-7, uh, they documented this very, very well. About midway through spring, about two weeks in, Brian Kelly and that staff, I think, said, okay, we're thin at that position. I know he's a true freshman. He just got here like 10 minutes ago. Put him at left tackle. And they put him there, and he held his own, and they don't have a luxury of options there, so Will, Will Campbell's going to have to pan out for them this year if they're going to have success on the offensive line. But they think he's good to go. They wouldn't have made that move in the spring if they didn't think he was good to go, even if they lacked options. They would not just throw him to the wolves in his second week or third week on campus. He's 6'6", about 3'10", and it, 
they have high hopes for him. He was very heavily recruited. So Will Campbell, that's a guy, for better or for worse, on the overall offensive line, he's a guy they're excited about, and he's a guy that's probably going to contribute early. This next name, everyone knows. Walter Nolan, the A&M class is so loaded, we, just, we chose Evan Stewart the first time around. Walter Nolan was ranked number two in the nation overall. He was one of seven defensive linemen ranked in the top 100 overall, wait for it, that signed with A&M. What you thought I may say there, if you don't pay attention to recruiting, is he was one of seven defensive linemen that were rated in the top 100. Oh, it was a deep D-line class, huh? Uh, yeah, and all of them signed with A&M. All of them. He's the best one out of all of them. He is 6'4", he's 325, there's no sloppy size on him. He's very advanced technically, very violent, very aggressive, but also he does not have a lot of looseness to his game. This is not an official scouting term. This is how I talk about defensive linemen. Sometimes these guys come out of high school and they're just, they're so big because God created them that way. And they have all the raw physical potential in the world, but it hasn't been honed. It hasn't been harnessed. So it's just loose. Uh, Walter Nolan, many things. Loose, not one of them. So I don't care how good they are already. Walter Nolan will be an impact player eventually, if not immediately, for AM. His pro comparison from our guys here at 24 7 was Dexter Lawrence at Clemson. I don't really think I need to tell you too much more than that. I'm going to stay in the state of Texas here, but we're not even going to nail it down to one person. We're going to go Texas, but just the entire offensive line class. And anyone who paid attention to spring practice knows that this has already been validated. The idea that the Texas O-line signing class is going to be impact in nature. Kelvin Banks, Devin Campbell, and Cole Hudson are three guys that we've singled out. Spring, I mean, look, listen, they couldn't even have a legitimate spring game because they didn't have enough offensive line depth. So obviously multiple true freshmen are going to help here. Hudson and Campbell, at least one of them is going to grab a starting guard spot. I think Banks is probably going to end up starting at a tackle position eventually, if not immediately, which is one of my favorite phrases when we're talking about true freshmen. Uh, remember Kelvin Banks now, that was, the one, that was the kid who initially made big waves when he committed to Oregon, but Texas ends up landing him. Don't overlook that. Everyone talks about line of scrimmage. Texas needs to improve along the line of scrimmage. Well, they did in this last class. They did as much as they could. They got the kids to sign, and now they enroll, and now you've eventually got to develop them. I, I think all three of them will end up seeing the field in some capacity this year, at least two of them probably as starters. Jay Sean Burham, or Burham, I, I didn't even know the pronunciation on the last name, is a kid that signed with Maryland. And I know we don't talk about Maryland a lot, but Hummer pointed this kid out, and I think we need to point him out too. He's a guy at a linebacker position that was already depleted for Maryland, and they weren't all that great at linebacker last year anyway. He was 119 overall in the 24-7 sports composite rankings. Really good tackler. Played outside in high school. I think they want to shift him down inside at the college level. But also really good sideline to sideline speed. Probably kind of like Walter Nolan, advanced technically. So Jay Sean Barham is a guy that at 6'3", 230, physically is ready to play at the college level. He probably will be a day one starter for Maryland. And Maryland, even if you don't expect them to contend this year, you know the conference they play in. Therefore, you know a lot of the opponents that they will draw throughout the year. So there's a lot of opportunity for you to see Jay Sean Barham on your screen this year. And Keonta Goodwin is the last one I wanted to touch on. That's the number six offensive tackle overall in the class, 38th overall rated player. Ended up signing with Kentucky. And this was a big deal. Remember, we had him on the signing day show. He was choosing between, I think, Michigan State and Kentucky. So he chooses Kentucky. 6'8", 335 is what he's at right now. But you see what his height weight was when he kind of enrolled, it was 6'8", 355. Just a massive human being. Side note, that guy was walking down a high school hallway six months ago. Should be right now. He early enrolled. Should be in high school right now. How do you get that big in high school? I don't know. Anyway, um, Kentucky's replacing both tackles. So Keonta Goodwin, he was running with the twos in spring. There are very high hopes within that staff, obviously, that he can eventually secure one of the starting tackle spots. And selfishly, I hope so as well. Kentucky is kind of like the NC State of the SEC. They're sitting there. They're not going to get a ton of national acclaim year one, uh, but they are you know, a couple of upsets away from doing some special things. Keonta Goodwin, 
is, if they do that, probably going to be one of the true freshmen that plays a big role in that. So those are at least, what, six, seven, or eight more true freshmen to keep an eye on. Paul, I hope you're happy now. i got to tell you, we're really happy here. Uh, like I said to start the show, we, as, as a show, Late Kick, we've been here, what, Colin, a little over two years, like two years and two months. And we have never spent a dime on marketing. Don't have a marketing budget. We've never even asked for I don't know if we can get one. We've never asked for one. And uh, man, our show is, is doing some things right now, statistically, that are pretty incredible, even by my standards. So thank you for that. When we said no off-season, you fully embraced it. Thank you for that. We are headed rapidly towards 100,000 total subs on the YouTube channel. Let's make that happen because I have a pretty good idea of what the surprise from management will be when we do it. So the sooner the better, the sooner the better, the sooner the better. Please, the sooner the better. Until when? This Tuesday, we'll have the Late Kick Extra for you. Thursday night, another edition of Late Kick Live. Uh, thank you, guys. We're making this thing go by as quickly as possible. It's media days and kickoff will be here before you know it. For Director Colin, for Producer Jesse, I'm Josh Bate. Thanks so much for watching. Have a great start to your week, and God bless. series on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean and a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire now streaming on Paramount Plus.